This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So, let's uh, start the new year 2023 with some news. We're going to try a new way to get in touch with our community of listeners. We often get asked... What about this topic or this topic for the podcast or this person? And we love hearing directly from you and we don't want that to stop. Feel absolutely free to contact us via social media or via the email on the website or if you see us in the wild. But we also wanted to organize some events potentially to meet you in person or online. So we decided to set up a Patreon page, you know, where you can be our patrons, as it's called in that podcast language, and you pay a monthly fee and you get extra bonus content. So we will have a War Criminals book club with our best friend of the podcast, Molly Quell, and supporters get uh, these extra monthly episodes where we will be discussing books, movies, podcasts we're listening to, mainly books, but we like to meander and talk about everything. And we're going to make sure that there are also some goodies for our Patreon listeners to get. And we'll be inviting you, as we said, to kind of chat to us properly a couple of times a year, online, offline. And we're going to launch in the next couple of weeks. Yep, looking forward to it. But meanwhile, we thought we'd tackle one of the big international law things that happened just at the tail end of 2022. Yep. It's the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, uh, that got asked by the United Nations General Assembly to provide an advisory opinion on the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. So we got an ICJ scholar and an Israeli scholar of occupation to chat to us. Uh, Janet, you talked to both of them. Do you want to run us through all this? Sure. And uh, maybe you can join in, Steph, with uh, some of the introductions to the bits and pieces. I've really started with a few questions of what don't I know, which in this case is quite a lot. So started with Mike Becker, who's Assistant Professor of Law at Trinity College, Dublin, to explain what this thing, an advisory opinion is. An advisory opinion is essentially a non-binding statement by a court, by a judicial entity, addressing some question of law. And yeah, what he's saying, obviously, this is kind of different than what we usually have at the ICJ, where there are contentious cases of states against states. Issuing advisory opinions on legal questions put to it by the UN Security Council or the UN General Assembly or other UN authorized bodies is the other half of the ICJ's function. But the most obvious difference here is that a a judgment in a contentious case is legally binding, and an advisory opinion, formally speaking, is not legally binding. So they fall into this kind of uh, important, but in some ways nebulous category of materials in international law that are non-binding, yet seem to be authoritative. So I wondered whether these advisory opinions are as important or less important than the actual judgments from the ICJ? The court itself doesn't really distinguish between or discriminate among its past advisory opinions or its past decisions in contentious cases when it draws upon them as authorities in support of whatever argument it might be making in a new case. So the court will cite its past advisory opinions, it'll cite past judgments, 
And it doesn't in any way suggest that something it said in an advisory opinion carries less weight or has less authority than something it said in some past decision in a contentious case. And Mike really makes clear here that these opinions do have a big effect. Despite the fact that those courts very often actually emphasize the non-binding nature of advisory opinions, in some ways, I think, because it gives them a little bit more freedom in terms of what they can can say or how they can push the law. Yeah, he went on to actually explain to me that you can look, for example, at how the International Court of Justice gave its opinion on the Chagos case, which we discussed in the podcast, which we did with Philippe Sands. And then that advice, that advisory opinion was actually relied on by the International Tribunal of Law of the Sea to just dismiss some of the preliminary objections in the maritime delimitation case. So it's like, you know, the ICJ opines and that's it. Absolutely. And so now the question is, why are the Palestinians pushing for an opinion on the legality of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and for that to be answered now? So I also turn to Eliav Lieblich, who's Professor of International Law at Tel Aviv University. The whole presumption of the law of occupation is that the situation is temporary. And because an occupation is supposed to be temporary, it has limitations. The temporariness is what distinguishes uh, occupation from just, you know, good or or bad old military dictatorship or even an apartheid regime. Essentially, there's a security rationale behind what the occupying power does and the laws of armed conflict apply. Right. And for decades, basically, Israel's official position was, well, the situation is temporary. The territories are held under belligerent occupation. I won't get into the nuances of Israel's legal position, but that that, that was the assumption. Assumption. So we are waiting for the political process to work out, and this is the situation until then. The last two or three governments, it depends how you interpret it, kind of started saying, "No, this is actually a permanent situation." So Benjamin Netanyahu's government actually claimed that it's going to annex the territories. The government after that, which was so-called centrist government, uh, was uninterested in any political process with the Palestinians. And this new government was just sworn in last week, actually saying, well, we're going to build everywhere in the occupied territories and and we don't even recognize that Palestinians have any uh, collective rights in the entire land of Israel. So it's not only within Israel proper, but including the occupied territories. So I think that, you know, was uh, the basis for the Palestinians being able to garner the support for an advisory opinion at this time, because the advisory opinion, uh, as opposed to the 2004 uh, opinion, and as opposed to most of the discussions on the occupation uh, of the Palestinian territories, is here the ICJ is requested to opine about the, let's say, legality of the situation as a whole, considering the fact that it is doesn't look temporary anymore. What the Palestinians are looking for right now is an advisory opinion on what they see as de facto annexation. So we know that nearly 20 years ago, uh, which sounds incredibly long ago, but I remember it and I was 
chatting about it and all my other colleagues were not there in the Hague for that, but I was, the ICJ also had to deal with a question about Israel-Palestine. And it was a big one. It was about the Israeli construction of a barrier between itself and some of the Palestinian occupied territory. And Eliav also refers to that opinion. If you look at the 2004 opinion, so, so the court there dealt with specific aspects of the occupation under the laws of armed conflict and human rights law, right? So whether you could build a wall here or there, right? And a lot of the discussion is, is on that level. But right now, what, what the ICJ has requested to do is to consider whether you can say something on the legality of the situation as a whole. So that's the big difference. You know, in some ways, this this new advisory opinion request is, is almost feels like a, a second chapter or a sequel to that earlier uh, advisory opinion request. So to recap uh, or remind listeners a little bit what that was about at the time, Israel was constructing a, a barrier, a security fence or security wall uh, along the boundary between Israel and the occupied territories, but the wall actually extended into part of the occupied territories and around East Jerusalem. And so the General Assembly requested an advisory opinion from the ICJ on whether this was was lawful. And among other things, in the wall opinion, the ICJ found that, well, in fact, the construction of that wall was contrary to international law, that Israel had an obligation to cease its construction, to take down the wall, and to make reparations for any damages that had been caused by the construction of the wall. And very controversially, the court in that case gave what I think a lot of commentators saw as pretty short shrift to some of Israel's arguments based on the law of self-defense, more or less saying that the law of self-defense couldn't apply in this particular type of situation. In terms of the weight or authority or impact that that decision had, that that advisory opinion had almost 20 years ago now, those non-binding conclusions by the court in the wall opinion, well, they haven't been implemented. So we're, we're almost two decades on, and rather than seeing what the court said needed to happen there, uh, rather than seeing that actually happen, we've seen all sorts of armed conflict, armed force, human rights violations in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over the past two decades. We've seen continuing annexation of territory, extensive continuing construction of Israeli settlements. And so in that sense, if the advisory opinion was meant to stop those things from happening, it's not a, a happy record of success. In some ways, the fact that this new opinion has had to be asked for points to the relative lack of impact, I think, of the earlier advisory opinion. So that's interesting as well, I think. As Mike says, maybe that one didn't have so much effect. Maybe this one will have more effect because it's dealing with the whole shebang and the whole shebang on the ground. That's what I wanted to ask Eliav then. Will any actual opinion from this court change the situation on the ground? And he said, no, not exactly, but it will have some kind of effect. I'm a believer that international law is process. It's not that you get a ruling or a decision and then you go and somebody enforces it. You know that as much as I do. So these rulings, like advisory opinions in the past, they are, let's say, moves or tools within a wider context of argumentation about framing narratives, about using such uh, opinions or decisions as a way to convince others uh, to galvanize some kind of 
process. Now, I think in the, in the past, some advisory opinions were mm-hmm. relatively successful in you know driving public opinion and other states to kind of intensify diplomatic pressure. So we know the string of opinions about Namibia. And we know the recent Chagos advisory opinion that we know that Mira two or three years later, later. So suddenly we hear the UK talking about, you know, negotiating the transfer of sovereignty there. I don't think that would have happened without the ICJ's advisory opinion. I'm not sure that this would be the case here, because from the point of view of the Israeli government, this is a matter of... Uh, maybe the most important aspect of their ideology of the perception of national security. So I don't see the advisory opinion itself moving it, but if it, it can phrase the narrative in, in, in some way that would contribute to more pressure on Israel. Mike Becker rightly points out that uh, there's a lot going on in how exactly the question is phrased. And we've known in the past that the court really looks at this and if they can get out from under saying something very general and kind of tailor it to where they say the least, how do I say this diplomatically? Least controversial? Yes, the least controversial thing, they they will find a way. So there's a lot in drafting a question, as as also Philippe Sands in the podcast about Chagos talked about how long they dealt with actually drafting exactly the question they wanted the court to answer. It's a complex, multifaceted question with various sub-questions here. So the different parts of the question here deal with well, what are the legal consequences arising first from the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination? So that's part one. It then asks about the legal consequences arising from prolonged occupation, settlement, annexation, including, so here we have a subpart of the question, including measures aimed at altering the demographic composition, character and status of Jerusalem and the legal consequences from related discriminatory legislation and measures. So there's a lot going on there. And um, there's a second question altogether, which is how do the policies and practices of Israel referred to in that first question affect the legal status of the occupation? And then I'd get another question, what are the legal consequences arising from that for all other states and the United Nations? So that's a, a huge number of questions really packed into this advisory opinion request. And that, I think, creates some risks. Eliav Lieblich, though, on the other hand, says that it's important to understand the bigger intent behind why the question has so many different elements to it. This idea of illegal occupation, it's kind of like an emerging doctrine. Usually when people discuss questions of occupation, they were discussing it under what we call use in bello, or IHL, International Humanitarian Law, which presumes you know, that various measures can be lawful or unlawful, but the entire question of legality is not one which is under IHL, okay? But, and I think there are good grounds to argue that this is only part of the picture, because let's say, you know, in, in Russia's aggression in Ukraine, right? So Russia is attack, attacking things in Ukraine. Let's say they're, they're, they're attacking uh, lawful targets. These are not lawful attacks, even if they are lawful under IHL, because it's part of an illegal whole, right? So if the rationale of the law of occupation doesn't exist, there is no justification in terms of self-defense, the law of occupation is only used as a pretext not to extend full human rights in the territory or to use security measures, far-reaching security measures 
that IHL grants occupants. So in that sense, I think there is a case to be made that there are situations in which the thing becomes illegal as a whole. And then the question is, what are going to be the consequences in law? And this is one of the questions that the ICJ has been asked. And I think what the Palestinians and their supporters are pushing here is that decision that would say that Israel has to terminate the occupation because it's illegal. It's an international wrongful act. Therefore, it has to be terminated even without negotiations. Because we know that until now, there is a negotiations framework. It's even mentioned in the 2004 ICJ opinion. So if the entire thing is unlawful, so what are the grounds for requiring negotiations to end it? Now, this is probably going to be completely unacceptable to the Israeli side, but it's a very powerful way to phrase things from the point of view of the Palestinians. We're not even obligated to negotiate with you about this. You have to withdraw and then we can maybe talk about things. With the way the court has dealt with this in the past, it's it's kind of unclear if the Palestinians will get that absolute condemnation that they might want, because the court is going to have to decide on so many different things. And it will also have to clarify all the different elements in the question, says Mike. I think it's risky because it, it gives the court in some ways more leeway to, to be selective or to decide how it might want to reformulate or reframe the question which is something that the court has frequently done in past advisory proceedings. And if the court has the opportunity to reformulate or reframe the question, you might end up with an advisory opinion that doesn't actually address quite what you had in mind when you submitted the questions in the first place. And in some ways, I'm a little bit surprised because to me, there there might have been ways to perhaps simplify this question or be more precise in the question in ways that would have made it more likely for the court to actually address what the proponents of this advisory opinion request are, are looking for. So both Mike and Aliyev spoke to me about how an opinion from the court might also have effects on third parties and might bring other obligations for them if the court rules a particular way, then potentially the whole world would actually have to respond. Another thing that I asked them, I think Eliav answers first, is will Israel actually decide to cooperate with, with the court and uh, actually participate in this case? Well, Israel, Israel has to decide whether it wishes to participate in the proceedings. So it can make its case and it can get its position out there. In the past, the so Israel doesn't cooperate with these uh, bodies recent years. It doesn't cooperate because it perceives these mechanisms as inherently biased and it makes no sense to legitimate them. So it doesn't cooperate with commissions of inquiry that come from the human rights bodies, uh, the Human Rights Council, or from the UN usually, and doesn't cooperate. It does, it's not obligated to because it's not a state party with the ICC, and it hasn't formally cooperated with the ICJ in 2004 or appeared in formal proceedings. So it's they also have to make this decision whether... This tactic is something that they should stick with or maybe they should reconsider. Usually it gets its positions known to the judges either by just publicly publishing or posting on the internet the official position and then the court can just look at it and refer to it. Or I think this time what they're planning to do is to kind of try to push the states that objected to the reference to request to submit 
their positions. So it might ask the U.S. or the U.K. or Germany, Italy, and so on and so forth to submit their own positions. And here he brings up another one of the criticisms of the ICJ, and one of the problems is in how it does its fact-finding. It doesn't do kind of its own fact-finding. It relies on other reports, usually usually UN reports, uh, what they can find. And the court was criticized after the 2004 Wall opinion for not uh, having the facts or the factual basis to justify its opinion, explains Mike. I think we might be likely to see some of those same issues or concerns come up here. Because in the Wall opinion, Israel decided to address the ICJ only on questions of jurisdiction and admissibility. They chose not to engage with the court on the substantive questions, the questions on the merits. And that had the effect of leaving the ICJ without certain information, certain factual information that might have been very relevant to assessing some of Israel's legal arguments, arguments that were made in, in the public domain about self-defense or a defense of necessity or a justification of necessity to explain the construction of the wall. So, and that actually provided the focus of a very strong declaration by Judge Bergenthal, the, the judge of U.S. nationality at the time, when the advisory opinion on the wall came out. And his position that was that he was really compelled to vote against the court's findings because it just didn't have the requisite factual record that it needed to support its otherwise sweeping findings on certain points. And as he put it, and I think this is an important idea to keep in mind, the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian people would have been better served had the court taken Israel's security arguments and security considerations into further account. Because by doing so, that would have given the advisory opinion the credibility that he believed it ended up lacking in the end. Now we're getting into the stuff that the uh, procedure goblins absolutely adore. And behind some of this, to start with, the fact-finding really depends on whatever documents the United Nations General Assembly attaches to the opinion. And that's basically unknown. Well, that's a little bit of a black box, how those decisions are made about what information is going to be supplied here. And then after that, the court decides who is invited to argue. And then we start to see what it is that the statements are from different states and, and what they want to argue about. So in the Chagos opinion, for example, around 30 states, a little bit more, made written statements, uh, as well as the African Union. In the Kosovo opinion from a decade earlier, that we had similar numbers in the mid-30s in terms of number of states uh, submitting written statements. And in the Wall opinion from 2004, and maybe that is the best predictor of what we'll see here, there were around 50 written statements from states and some international organizations. And then finally, we start to get a chance maybe to actually hear some of the arguments. You have a parade of states and council over several days making relatively brief statements. But in that way, you get a much broader, or at least potentially, you get a much broader selection of views and, and arguments and perspectives on, on the issue. But we can expect to see probably the key players, let's say, the states with the greatest interest in the matter being given prime of place. So you might see, for example, um, representatives from Palestine and representatives from Israel, if they choose to participate, given the chance to speak for a longer amount of time, or perhaps to speak first or, or something like, like that. 
one of the things I was wondering is if the Palestinians think that the ICJ is the most important case, because they're also at the same time on a different track pushing for this investigation at the International Criminal Court, which is looking into war crimes and crimes against humanity on the Palestinian territories. Yeah, I wondered exactly that. And in fact, I put the question to Eliav saying, you know, which way are the Palestinians going in terms of lawfare? And um, he really didn't like me using that term lawfare. I don't want to speculate whether this will be uh, the big one. I think uh, the Palestinians are, I think, very impressively, I think, understandably, in a situation in which you are the weaker party militarily, they utilize every single diplomatic legal mechanism they can to kind of push uh, their own uh, agenda and interests. I won't describe it as lawfare. It's, uh, to me, a legitimate way in which a party to a conflict utilizes the mechanisms that, that are available in the international community. I don't know if this is the big one. I mean, the, the ICJ is a, a prestigious court. I think it would be meaningful, whatever it says. I don't know if this is a thing that will tilt the, the scale. But as I said, it's all part of a process in trying to kind of reach this critical mass of decisions, rulings, positions that would kind of push push uh, uh, people and states to move. I think that's so, so, so that would be a big part of it. But in terms of the legal question, I do agree that it's a big one because in pure formal terms, yeah, that's a big one. Another thing he points out that is if the ICJ did rule on illegal occupation, uh, that could have implications for other situations, for instance, uh, Ukraine, which have been occupied by Russia even before the invasion and, and how uh, this, this kind of general opinion influenced that, that situation. If the ICJ would... And I'm not entirely optimistic that it will do so, but uh, if it will set forth a credible and detailed doctrine of illegal occupation, so that can, of course, apply in other situations. And and, and that can be a, kind of a, a way to push international law in this field forward. But then, you know, there, there are a lot of very unique aspects of this situation. So it's very kind of hard to, to replicate in a way that would not be distinguishable from this case. And maybe a bit naively, I also wanted to ask Eliav as a professor of international law working at one of the main Israeli universities, Tel Aviv University, who's, I mean, he teaches international humanitarian law, he teaches public international law, and we kind of have this impression of Israel as a place where there's such a strong antipathy to kind of the international side of law and its norms. So I wondered how he managed to do his teaching. First of all, I teach in the same way that I talk to you. Second, I think, yeah, there is much that is not respected, but there's also a very, let's say, legalistic culture. Yeah, that's also, you know, not taken for granted. But at least historically, this is actually behind a lot of the legal constructs that we're seeing now. So basically, Israel is one of the only occupants in history that even not perfectly admitted that it's occupying territory and that it's subject to the laws of occupation, at least the uh, Hague regulations and some parts of the Geneva Convention that it applies on humanitarian grounds. So the state is relying on this body of law to legitimate itself, which really calls, you know, to critique on that level. And of course, you know, you have to say things and not everyone will uh, agree. And, and in my classroom, I have 20% Palestinian citizens of Israel and I have uh, students that have just finished the army. 
And I think there's a way to discuss things in a way that people don't feel that they're indoctrinated. But uh, also in terms of, you know, pedagogical choices, I only teach this stuff, you know, I, of course, throughout the course you get, we study rulings by the Supreme Court of Israel that have to do with occupied territories. We discuss these things here or there, but I only get to the core of the question after the students have learned enough to be able to assess things on the basis of knowledge and not on the basis of just their emotions, right? So they understand the centrality of human rights in modern international law. They understand, you know, what sovereignty is and, and, and the limitations on sovereignty. They understand what international organizations do or the ideology or the interests or, or the rationales behind them, right? So, yeah. And it's not that it's not challenging, right? But I don't think it's impossible. So that's quite a wide range of stuff that we've covered. I hope that the audience finds it interesting. I mean, it's basically, again, just me asking all kinds of questions because I have no idea how it all works. But Stephanie, maybe you also want to add in some of the things that you know about, like how long it might take. I mean, how long is this piece of string that, yeah. that we have at the ICJ? Well, when this case dropped, I, I figured some editor is going to call me and ask me when we're going to have hearings and how this is all going to play out. So I spent an afternoon looking up all former advisory opinions and seeing how timelines went. And so from this kind of bean counting exercise, I can tell you that usually when the UN General Assembly sends this request, it takes a couple of days for the court to kind of send out a press release to say, we have received this request, which they haven't done so far. And, and now well, Christmas, New Year, Christmas, New Year. But um, the first thing is that they put out a press release to say we received this, then usually it takes them around a month to say, uh, these are the parties who could submit information about this. And then they set a kind of time limit for when you can put these reactions. In the last case for the wall advisory opinion, it was very rapid. And so they had within three months or something, written statements, and then they put out a press release to say that they would have hearings, which they can have, but they're not obliged to do so. But I assume if you look at all the other advisory opinions and all the states that want to have a word about this, they, they probably will. In the first Israeli-Palestine case, the wall, it took about six months for them to schedule these hearings, uh, which we covered extensively then. And about a year after the first request, we had an opinion. Now, that seems very swift. I mean, extremely that. fast. Uh, looking at the other uh, other advisory opinions, Kosovo and also Chagos, that took a lot longer. There, it took about a year before they had actual hearings about it. So the question is really, do they want to move forward? I think that also, how quickly do they want? How charged is the court with all kinds of other cases? I mean, we've seen that the case burden for the court has been increasing over the over the past couple of years, just before the end of the year, there's also like two or three requests from Azerbaijan and Armenia who are engaged in some kind of tit-for-tat uh, case at the ICJ, where they're now both asking for new emergency measures. So it looks like they have a pretty full docket. It's also a question of when they can slot this in. So even if they want to go very fast, I expect it will be late this year, maybe to have hearings about it. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll carry on covering it. I'd be really interested to hear from people what other questions we should be asking, because I felt very icebergy on this one. I was really felt like I was only covering the top 
part of it. And I'm sure there's lots of really important specific detail in the request and uh, there will be in some of the responses from the states that we should be looking at. Yeah, maybe when we see all the all the responses and we can also get some people from on the ground on the Palestinian side to talk about living under occupation and the, what kind of rights and not rights they would want, that might be in another interesting counterbalance to this, which is more the legal argument. Great. Okay. Well, onwards and upwards. Um, we'll carry on going for the rest of 2023. Absolutely. Happy new international criminal law year, I would say. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.